in a series of uh, lectures on biblical prophecy uh, with Dr. Ice. Um, I've known him a long time, and uh, he's currently, uh, for the last uh, few number of years, he's been working with uh, Dr. Tim LaHaye and uh, has been a co-founder of the uh, pre-trib rapture study group, which is a um, group, a theological uh, society, a group of people who are um, articulating the dispensational view of prophecy that we've been studying on Thursday nights uh, so that um, you, I think you'll be um, impressed and uh, edified uh, by his ministry. It'll cover a wide-ranging area and tonight the uh, lecture is to introduce us to the basic categories of prophecy and the historical uh, record of what's gone on in this field. Of course, those of you who've been here regularly on Thursday nights know the word eschatology. You know what it stands for, category of Bible doctrine that pertains to the future. And therefore, um, we'll open in a word of prayer and then uh, we won't waste any more time. Uh, we'll get right to, uh, to Dr. Ice. Father, we thank you for our time together. We thank you for the salvation that comes through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the indwelling Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that created the universe, that generated the infallible and inerrant text of Scripture, that preserved that text down over the centuries, and today helps us understand what the content and meaning of that text is. And we ask tonight that you would guide our hearts to listen to your words from Scripture about your plan for history. That because history has a purpose, our lives also have a purpose. And that if history does not have a purpose, then our lives cannot have a purpose. And so let us not tonight denigrate prophecy or think ill of it, but think of it as the word of life which it is. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. Well, it's good to Oops. that one and that one conflict, right? It's good to be with you all. I've listened to all the tapes for the last five or six years. Been here twice and uh, as an observer. And... Um, from 65 to 69, our family lived in Prince George's County, Maryland. I went to high school, to Duval High School in Glendale, Maryland. And uh, so I've lived in Maryland for a while. And, uh, but I'm basically from Texas. <laughs> and uh, back in the early 70s, I, had got, I grew up Southern Baptist like all good Texans used to. And uh, I got involved in the charismatic movement in the early 70s, kind of the Jesus movement, charismatic movement type stuff. And then I uh, went to Howard Payne College, one of the eight Southern Baptist colleges in Texas. And uh, if you can name them all after the thing, I'll have a bonus question for you afterwards, which is what college used to be a Southern Baptist college. But nevertheless, uh, I started listening to tapes by a guy named Charlie Clough, and uh, he had a tremendous influence on my life in that way. So everything I've learned, I've learned from him. So if you have any questions when I leave, you know who to ask. 
and uh, so he really had an impact through his teaching, as I'm sure he's had on some of y'all, and uh, really got me in what I think is the right direct, going in the right direction early on. And one of the reasons I got interested in prophecy or eschatology is I had become a uh, reconstructionist to some extent. That's a uh, movement within the Calvinist wing of Christendom, and uh, they had uh, are very anti-dispensational. And I'd gone to Dallas Seminary, and I had reached a crisis moment in my life where I was considering becoming a post-millennial preterist. And uh, some of y'all know what that means. And hopefully more of y'all will know what it means after tonight. But to make a long story short, I didn't, but I almost did. And that got me interested in, in eschatology, and I started write, got involved in writing and all that kind of stuff. And for the last seven years, I've been working with Dr. LaHaye, uh, and he's got uh, a lot of uh, stuff that we're doing um, uh, stacked up for us for the, in the days ahead. But what I wanted to do tonight was talk about some of the theological categories and some of the history uh, relating to eschatology. But if you have any questions, you know, about the rapture or any of this kind of stuff, please ask me, you know, or either during one of the formal question and answer times or, uh, you know, aside. If you have any questions about the history of eschatology, I, I, I majored in church history at Dallas Seminary and have tried to learn some about the history of eschatology and stuff. Uh, and uh, being interested and involved in studying issues relating to the preacher of rapture and all that kind of stuff. Um, I, so you probably have questions that we've, we've uh, I could either give you a book or something like that to uh, uh, deal with it. But I developed a, uh, an approach to the rapture that because, based on personal conversations with people over the years and I, and I developed this little house diagram uh, that shows that there are certain foundational issues before you get to the doctrine of the rapture. And there are four issues that we'll be dealing with. And I'm not going to be dealing with the rapture tonight. I'll be dealing with that tomorrow. But I'm using this little diagram because I'm not going to go over this when I give my talk on the rapture. And this, these four foundational issues revolve, the whole issue of eschatology revolves around these four foundational issues. And a lot of people aren't aware of the different views of these issues and how they can uh, be inter, uh, cross-pollinated and things like that and give very complicated views of eschatology. And so hopefully once you learn these categories, you will then be able to see that a person may be a futurist postmillennialist, he may be a preterist postmillennialist, a preterist ami. You see what I'm saying? And you'll start be able to uh, uh, understand where people are coming from and not see it as a blob. In fact, that's why we wrote our book, Fast Facts on Bible Prophecy, was so you can learn the vocabulary and get involved in understanding what people mean by what is being said in the area of Bible prophecy. So the first foundational issue is the issue of literal interpretation, right? It's always hermeneutics or interpretation. And I believe, well, then premillennialism, and then the issue of futurism and the distinction between Israel and the church. In other words, these are the four categories that we'll be dealing with. 
I, I didn't know I had all this stuff on here. These are the basic arguments for the preacher of rapture that we'll be dealing with that then uh, result in a certain practical thing. So we first want to deal with literal interpretation. And in my discussion over the years, I've noticed that the word literal is used in at least two senses. One sense, you're talking about your system of interpretation, whether you are a literal or allegorical interpreter. And what we mean by this is that the word literal, if you look it up in the dictionary, Oxford English Dictionary, it literally means according to the letter. And so when you're talking broadly about interpretation, literal interpretation means to interpret something according to the text. In other words, based upon what the word is saying in its context, uh, considering the grammar and all that kind of stuff. It is not based upon an idea that you have to have from outside the text, a secret key to interpreting that you have to bring from outside the text. That's allegorical interpretation, you see, where you bring something in from outside the text. So literal interpretation understands the text according to what is written. For example, in the area of Bible prophecy, Israel means Israel. Isn't that amazing? And the church means the church. And that's what we mean by your overall interpretation versus in the field of Bible prophecy, someone who says, when you read Israel in the Old Testament, we plug in the word church. And so that's not in the text, you see, and so that's a belief or an idea that they're importing from outside the text. And that's the first sense in which literal is used. But there's a second sense, and in discussions, this is why I have an apple and an orange there, people who are opposed to literal interpretation will play a shell game with you. You may be talking about literal hermeneutics, an apple, and then they'll come in and give an illustration from, uh, a, in a different sense, an orange, you see. And so you have to know this to keep it straight and don't let them pull that dirty little trick on you. And every word or phrase can be used in one of two ways. It can either be plain literal, or, or we call it denotative for people who've been to seminary, or figurative or connotative. Every word or phrase is used in one of these two ways. In fact, the context determines whether something is a figure of speech or whether it's got a plain usage and can be explained by textual factors, you see? It's not some outside idea, but it's textual factors. For example, the reason I believe a thousand in Revelation 20 refers to a literal thousand years is because it's in a narrative context where years mean years. But then you go where it says the Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and the opponents of literal interpretation says, well, does he own the cattle on a thousand and first hill? And you read the next line, knowing Hebrew poetry, where it says he owns everything. And so it's true, thousand in that context is used as a figure of speech, you see. But you can explain it, both of them, from the context. Uh, so something is either a figure of speech or it can be a plain figure, uh, something that's said plainly. And this is a different way than we're talking about the first sense of literal hermeneutics, you see, where you're talking about your system versus whether you're talking about a figure of speech. And people who oppose literal interpretation will 
historically the argument against literal interpretation is if you interpret the Bible literally, it will lead to absurd conclusions. Back in the early church, that's what they argued. And today, that's what they argue. Why, if you interpret the Bible literally, then you believe John's going to climb back into his mother's womb. You believe Jesus was a door. All of that kind of stuff. No, we've defined what we meant by the two senses of literal. Uh, we could say, for example, he died or he kicked the bucket. Saying the same thing. One's a figure of speech. You can explain the figure of speech. In fact, I was listening when I lived in Northern Virginia up until two years ago to an Oriole game about four years ago. I'm an Astros fan, but I was listening to the Orioles. And uh, actually, I live in Arlington, Texas now, and my sons work at the ballpark uh, sometimes in the summer. Uh, boy, what'd y'all think of that no hitter <laughs> the other day? It's not too good second game of the season, is it? I mean, unless your guy did it, but. Uh, I thought I thought Baltimore was going to be good this year. No, I see a no. Okay, well, nevertheless, nevertheless, I was listening to this game, and this was the year the Orioles went to the playoffs. And remember, they played the Yankees, and that guy uh, in the stands kicked the ball. You know, and it was the game during the regular season where they clinched their uh, playoff spot. And this literally happened in the ninth inning. He said the third baseman was hugging the line. Now, was he literally hugging the line, or did it mean something else? Those of you who are familiar with baseball culture know it meant he was playing close to the line. Because in the late innings, with a one-run lead, you don't want a guy to get an extra base hit, right? Okay. And then after they won, he said the, literally said the catcher went and hugged the pitcher. Now, did he literally hug him or not? Well, once again, knowing the context, he hugged him. See, this is not that hard. People try to make it really hard. And the Bible is interpreted in the same way. So, we believe in literal interpretation. And I, I like this golden rule. Some people don't. It says, when the plain sense of Scripture makes sense, makes common sense, seek no other sense. We're not using the word common sense here in, in a sense of a philosophical term. It's a literary term. Seek no other sense. Therefore, take every word at its primary, ordinary, uh, literal meaning unless the facts of the immediate context studied in the light of related passages. See how the context uh, context limits the meaning of uses. You know, people say, oh, words, you know, the word run has over a hundred different connotations or uses. Run a salmon, uh, he scored a run, she's got a run in her stock and run to the store, you see. But in a, in a context, you can always know what it means. You know, you grow up in the language, and, and, and we don't have a problem communicating with this. So in the facts of the immediate context, studying the light of related passages and axiomatic and fundamental truths indicate clearly otherwise. Now, down through the history of the church, just a quick overview. I think you can divide history up in the ancient church up to the 600 where you had theological definition. The medieval church was a time of theological darkness. In some ways, it was a time of theological progress, but... By and large, it was a theological decline, uh, especially in the Western and Eastern churches, uh, where it, uh, the theology got so corrupt and the morality got so corrupt, it led to a reformation of the church 
in the 1500s where you had some theological restoration. And then the modern church, basically with uh, Kant, the advent of Kant and uh, liberalism has been theological decline, better known as apostasy. And during the uh, Middle Ages, hermeneutics had declined so bad that they had, they had developed what we call layered interpretive approaches. In other words, you had multiple layers of hermeneutics or interpretive approaches. And they had even gotten to the point where they believed, this was mainstream uh, medieval Catholic church, that every passage had to be interpreted to refer to Jesus. They had misinterpreted the passage in Luke 24, you know, that where Christ was talking about the prophecies of the Old Testament, where he said, they, the, uh, they, these are those that speak of me. And so they had to go and make every pass, every word and phrase refer in some mystical way, even historical passages, to Jesus. And so the Reformation restored historical grammatical uh, interpretation to the church. In fact, Calvin went about halfway. In other words, he restored about halfway. He uh, didn't... Uh, do it in other areas like eschatology and, and, and letting Israel mean Israel always, but he took a giant step, so much so that the Lutherans called him a Judaizer. You know, that's what you call somebody who's too literal. If you're uh, an anti-Semitic ca uh, Catholic in the Middle Ages, you call him a Judaizer, you see. That's the name uh, they call him. And as time went on, by the 1800s, uh, they started applying literal hermeneutics to the area of prophecy, and so as the modern church has gone down into liberalism, the conservative church has developed actually uh, the hermeneutics in the last couple hundred years and applied it to the field of eschatology. Now, the next area we want to look at is what we call uh, the millennial issue. And, you know, there's three basic views. Ah, millennialism. Can everybody say ah? Ah, thank you. Uh, ah, millennialism basically... Uh, teaches that the church age and the millennium are this one and the same. That we're in the millennium and they allegorize the two resurrections in Revelation chapter 20 with the first resurrection being spiritual and the second resurrection being physical. Do you know the word anastasis or resurrection is never used spiritually, in my humble opinion, in the whole Bible? Why? Because the word resurrection always refers to the physical raising of the body, you see. But they, a guy named Tychonius in the 4th century came up with the, that, that allegorical interpretation of resurrection being when you get saved so that the resurrection is a physical resurrection because if you have two resurrections, as the scripture literally teaches, then you have to have premillennialism. And they wanted to avoid premillennialism. And so there's a general second coming. Amillennialism basically teaches one day Jesus just kind of shows up, kind of like that, that song that I really don't like. The, you know, the marketplace is empty everywhere, you know. No debate. The king is coming, that's it. It's amillennial in its theology. You know, it's like everything's going along fine one day and Jesus just happens to come and everybody puts their hammer down and all of that and we go to heaven. That's not the way it's going to be. It's going to be a lot of blood and guts, you know, before that. And then you have the resurrection of the saved and lost and the judgment saved and lost all at one time, and you go into the eternal state. Amillennialism is really very boring from a historical perspective because it reduces, 
everything down to just symbols of we win. Hey, we do win, but there's a few details they've left out. Postmillennialism is very similar to amillennialism, except it's got the idea of progress added in. And they take uh, the very same type of view, but they say, uh, we believe the church, before Jesus returns, is going to conquer, is going to actually uh, lead to Christ a majority of the world's population, and that as a result of that, the church will have such a great uh, social, political, uh, economic, you name it, impact that the world will become Christianized is the term they like to use. And they don't like the term bringing in the kingdom because the kingdom's already here, they say. And I've always said about amillennialism, postmillennialism, if this is the kingdom, I must be living in the ghetto side of it somewhere. But the fact of the matter is, is they believe that the majority of the world's going to be, and they don't care what's going on circumstantially. They say we don't you know, we're not newspaper exegetes. We believe the Bible. And uh, so they think that that's what the Bible teaches. The only problem is the Bible doesn't teach that. And uh, it's basically amillennialism with optimism thrown in. And that when Jesus returns at the end of uh, this period, and they usually divide the current age into two phases, the age in which the kingdom is advancing and then the victorious age, once the church has uh, gained rule over the world. And then there's premillennialism, which is the view I hold, and that is that there's the church age, the tribulation, second coming, and after Christ comes back before the thousand-year reign, and he reigns literally on planet Earth, he's going to actually be here for a thousand years. I mean, you can go to Jerusalem and shake his hand. You won't even have to make a campaign contribution to do that. And then at the end of the thousand years, he will, a history ends and we go into eternity. So premillennialism is the most complicated uh, because it is the most literal view and it takes, uh, has a lot of details involved in it. Now, I believe the first resurrection is a qualitative term uh, and there's multiple first resurrections, but the first resurrection is not a chronological term. It's a qualitative term uh, referring to uh, those who are raised with Christ. And the second resurrection, a qualitative term, refers to the resurrection of the unregenerate that takes place at the end of history. God, in a sense, collects the unbelievers in what I like to call the county jail. They are then taken to their trial and convicted and they go to the lake of fire, which is like going to, we'd say in Texas, Huntsville, there is the state pen. And uh, they, so they're not in the lake of fire yet, they're in a place, but the county jail and the penitentiary are an awful lot alike, just says where they are now and the lake of fire are an awful lot alike, but they're two separate locations. Now. Support for premillennialism is, as we've talked about, consistent literal interpretation, the unconditional nature of the covenants, the biblical covenants that Charlie's been talking about. In other words, if, if he made that promise of land to Abraham, then he's got to fulfill that promise. By the way, I did the notes in the study Bible on Genesis. I think I counted over 30 repetitions in Genesis alone of the promise in the Abrahamic covenant in some form or another around 30 times in Genesis alone. 
Now, Israel means Israel. And that land over there, I just got back from it 10 days ago, Israel, is a geographical location where you can go all around the country and find archaeological digs that have evidence of all the historical events that have happened. You know, the Mormons, they, they got the largest archaeology department in America, and they can't find one shred of the supposed Mormon history that existed before. And they've been running around trying to you go to Israel and you put a spade in, you build a road and you turn up something. You know, uh, King David was here or something like that, you know, over there. The, the, you have the Abrahamic covenant. The Old Testament teaches literal earthly kingdom. The kingdom is carried unchanged into the New Testament. Christ also supports an earthly kingdom because he doesn't change the language or literature carried over from the Old Testament. There are multiple resurrections in scriptures. We've already talked about Revelation 20 teaches premillennialism. So uh, the whole Bible teaches premillennialism. It's just that the thousand years or the length of it is the, is the only time it's stated in Revelation chapter 20, although it's six times there. The early church was premillennial. Uh, the uh, amillennialism and postmillennialism have failed in history. In other words, their view of history has not uh, worked out. You would think if postmillennialism, for example, was true, there would be one place where they could bring in the kingdom of God. I mean, I don't think it'd do a lot of good even if 80% of the world became Christians. I mean, we can't even get along in our own churches with each other, right? I mean, we can't even bring the millennium into our church, let alone uh, if we got the whole world converted. And then premillennial harmonizes the entire Bible, you know, where you don't have to allegorize. And it gives us a satisfactory conclusion within history. Amillennialism and postmillennials' conclusion is, is supra-historical. In other words, it's outside of history. It's above history in heaven. That's not part of this history. That's just generally some support. Now, if you look historically at the development of millennialism, the early church was premillennial to a man. Uh, for at least the first 200 years. That was called kiliasm. And then it began to die out as uh, the empire became uh, Christianized with Constantine. And then, I always like to point out to people, you didn't have amillennialism develop, you had anti-millennialism develop. They did not have a positive amillennial system until later. What you had were people from Greek backgrounds who didn't like the idea of a physical kingdom on earth. It offended them, like, like Alexander of Alexandria, Origen, and eventually Augustine, Jerome, who said in 399, away with a thousand years. And Jerome and Augustine drove premillennialism underground in the Western church. So out of anti-millennialism came amillennialism. By the way, I find that true today. People who leave premillennialism become anti-premillennial, and then they, they look around. This is why they'll go amill and then post. They're looking around for something to do. And for some reason, some people are offended by, you know, the biblical teaching. And amillennialism, as we've already explained, you know, uh, was developed. Amillennialism is basically a Roman Catholic view of the church. It's that simple. And it's, it, it's sad when some Protestants did not carry the Reformation on enough to have a uh, truly Protestant view. I think premillennialism certainly would be more of a Protestant view uh, than the old bringing over that Roman Catholic sick dead horse uh, called amillennialism. Postmillennialism is where they got a little optimistic. 
you know, sitting around one night, and I guess they had a, a twinge of optimism uh, come in there. And, you know, there are some moments of optimism early on, but, you know, some say people like uh, John Owen in 1652, but really as Daniel Whitby, who was a Unitarian, there was he denied the Trinity, was the first guy to really come up with systematic postmillennialism. And there's no doubt that Jonathan Edwards and almost all the Europeans were influenced by Daniel Whitby, even though some postmillennialists today try to say that there were postmillennialism before that. But it didn't become a system in the modern sense until really Daniel Whitby in 1703. And then you had a revival of premillennialism. Uh, in the late 1500s, uh, there was a study note in the Geneva Bible about the Jews were going to be converted. In fact, that study note was so influential that England, for example, that had banned the Jews in, in the uh, 13th century, uh, invited them back in. They had a whole session of parliament and said, you know, God's not finished with the Jews. And they invited them back into England back in the 16, early 1600s, 1612, I think, 1609, somewhere around in there, based upon their belief that God has a future for the Jews. By the way, that's historically... Uh, what anti-Semitism develops out of is, is if you come to the place where you believe that God has no future for the Jews, then that often is the basis for developing anti-Semitism. Historically, that's been the view. That's why premillennialism has never been anti-Semitic, whereas the other two are, I'm not saying they're necessarily anti-Semitic, but they're, they're susceptible to that. And by the way, the church or Christian nations were involved before Hitler in killing over 5 million Jews. That was before the 1930s. Christendom had been involved in killing over 5 million Jews. So uh, that was nothing new. It was just an extension of anti-Semitism there. And in 1627, you, you have uh, some of the British and Germans becoming premillennial. And then you have modern premillennialism, which uh, came on later on in the 1820s when people finally got into futurism, as we'll be talking about in a moment, and developed dispensational premillennialism, which I think is the most consistent form of premillennialism. So that's the millennial issue. And then the issue of futurism are, uh, and this is the area that most people have little or no understanding of, I find. And that is, uh, do you see prophecy as past, present, future, or timeless, you see? And that, as we'll show you, really impacts the type of postmillennialism, the type of premillennialism, or the type of amillennialism that you have. And so there are four ways, theoretically, that a person can relate to time. Past, present, future, and timeless or atemporal. And so guess what? There are four ways of approaching uh, especially the book of Revelation, but prophecy that relates to the rapture, the tribulation, the second coming, and the millennium. And the first is called preterism. Some of y'all may have heard this. It's become popular in the last 15 years or so uh, with R.C. Sproul's conversion to preterism, among other people. And preterism is uh, divided into three different types. There's extreme preterist preterism, and I'm sure there are people in your community that are full or extreme preterists. And these are people who believe that there is no future second coming. That Christ came in A.D. 70. 
For example, David Chilton, who was a partial preterist, became a full preterist. Uh, there's a guy, Walt Hibbert, who used to own the great Christian bookstores on Elkton, Maryland. He, he became a full preterist. You know, there, there are people who are evangelical is what I'm saying. And many, uh, this movement was, uh, was stimulated from the churches of Christ. Not all churches of Christ are preterist or full preterist. But it came especially out of the churches of Christ. And it's come into the reform camp. And some of these people have gone full preterist and says there is no future second coming. As one of them told me at a conference one time, if the Bible talks about the second coming, I mean, if there's going to be a future second coming, the Bible doesn't talk about it. Of course, my follow-up question to him was, well, let's just presuppose that there was a second coming in the Bible. How would God articulate it in such a way that you wouldn't mess it up? And he didn't, have it. He didn't know. I said, well, I don't know either. But they, they say that everything happened in A.D. 70. Then there's moderate preterism, which believes, which is what Sproul and others, uh, David Chilt, I mean, um, Ken Gentry and others, uh, especially in the Reconstructionist movement, are holding to. And uh, I guarantee you there are churches in this area that hold to preterism. It's, it's becoming popular. It's found in every metropolitan area now. And they believe most of prophecy was filled in A.D. 70. But there is still a future second coming. You know, there's three or four passages left that teach the second coming. And then the, the earliest form of preterism is mild preterism, which said the book of Revelation is about uh, God defeating his two ancient enemies, the Jews in AD 70 and the Roman Empire in AD 350. And so they say that most stuff was fulfilled by AD 350. Now, hardly anybody holds that view anymore. People, almost everybody's either a full preterist or a moderate preterist. And let's look at preterism for a moment. What is it? Well, it's a Latin term, which means... Uh, I had to wait for that thing to quit twisting around there. Oh, I see. That was a book I've got in the back. Uh, I forget what I have in here sometime. And that thing takes... Um, I have a book where I, I debated a preterist named Ken Gentry. He's one of the leading preterists, and if you, it's back there in the back. Right here. Yeah, that's it. And preterism is uh, based on a Latin word meaning gone by or past. So preterism holds that the tribulation prophecies occurred in the first century, thus in our past. Uh, they usually almost always start with Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse. And they say that the Olivet Discourse is not about, this is a quote, not about the second coming of Christ, it's a prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And about the book of Revelation, they say, the book of Revelation, is a quote, is not about the second coming of Christ, it is about the destruction of Israel and Christ's victory over his enemies and the establishment of the new covenant temple, the church. In fact, the word coming, as used in the book of Revelation, never refers to the second coming. But the main focus of Revelation is upon the events which were soon to take place. David Chilton. R.C. Sproul's preterism, uh, since he's kind of well known, says, I'm convinced that the substance of the Olivet Discourse was fulfilled in AD 70. That means it was, when you say the substance. And that the bulk of Revelation was likewise fulfilled in that time. R.C. Sproul Sr. does not see a lot of merit in partial. Uh, Cecil does see a lot of merit in the partial preterist approach. In other words, he's not a full preterist, but he is a partial preterist. 
And Matthew 24, 34 says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And so Ken Gentry says this statement of Christ is indisputably clear and absolutely demanding of a first century fulfillment of the events in the preceding verses, including the Great Tribulation. There's Matthew 24, you know, is a passage that's historically been taught the second coming of Jesus Christ. You know, he's coming back in clouds, you know, in glory, and every eye will see him. Well, they think that that refers to AD 70. Sproul says the cataclysm, cataclysmic course surrounding the parousia, if you really want to be academic, you, for second coming, you always say the word parousia. Can you all say parousia? Thank you. As predicted in the Olivet Discourse, obviously did not occur literally in AD 70. This problem of literal fulfillment leaves us with three basic solutions. And uh, here's solution number one, according to Pro. We can interpret the entire discourse literally. Heaven forbid. In this case, we must conclude that some elements of Jesus' prophecy failed to come to pass as advocates of consistent eschatology remains. Uh, that's his name for us, consistent eschatology. He says solution two is we can interpret the events surrounding predicted parousia literally and interpret the time frame references figuratively. This method is employed by those who do not restrict the phrase to Jesus' contemporaries. In other words, he would say that's what we do. In other words, when we say, uh, he said he would come, uh, this generation will not pass away, so he says we allegorize that thing so that we can take uh, the details of the passage as future or literal. That's what he says about us. I disagree, as I'll show in a moment. I'm sure you knew I would disagree, right? We can interpret the time frame references literally and event, the events surrounding the parousia figuratively. And this is his view. All of Jesus' prophecies and all of his discourse were filled during the period between the discourse itself and the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Not literally. In other words, Jesus didn't come back bodily, but figuratively. And... I say the solution is that Christ is saying that the generation that sees all these things occur will not cease to exist until all the events of the future tribulation are literally fulfilled. In other words, that is a different literal interpretation, but it's a literal interpretation, you see? Because the, even though the phrase this generation in other contexts does refer to Christ's contemporaries, because it's in an eschatological context here, uh, in other words... It, that phrase in and of itself doesn't mean that it has to have been fulfilled uh, during the lifetime of Christ's contemporaries. That phrase, this generation, is controlled by the context. And he's sa simply saying that uh, those who see the events of Matthew 24, in other words, the events of the seven-year tribulation, they will not pass away until all these things be fulfilled. And that is a literal interpretation of the phrase this generation it makes sense in the context and that way we're able to consistently interpret the whole passage literally now uh, the problem with the preterist is the Olivet Discourse except for Luke 21 20 through 24 speaks of Israel's deliverance from her enemies not her judgment as preterism wrongly insists in other words preterists teach that uh, the all that discourse is God judging Israel for her rejection, that God's finished with Israel. He's, in fact, they often like to use divorce language. He divorced her. He's over. He's finished. He's got the church, his bride. 
and that they're finished. The problem is, is when you read Matthew 24, it's not about Israel being judged, it's about Israel being saved. In fact, I pointed that out in many debates. I've never heard, heard an answer from them. They always want to change the topic because it's talking about a future coming, just like Zechariah is talking about, 12, 10, and 11. Revelation is talking about when Israel will be rescued at the second coming. So that's why it's talking about the, a future time period. And that's why he says this generation will not pass away. In other words, during the seven-year tribulation when over half of the world's population is destroyed and the, the whole armies of the world are gathered against Israel to wipe them out at the Battle of Armageddon, they're not going to pass away until all these things are fulfilled, including Israel's salvation and deliverance. In fact, Luke 21, 20-24 does talk about AD 70, about Israel being judged. It's very clear that the, the, the armies will surround Jerusalem and, and the, the days of vengeance are here. And then it says at the end of verse 24 that Israel will be scattered among the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. In fact, I asked Ken Gentry a while back when I invited, I was teaching a class out in California at a seminary, and I asked him to come in one evening and teach us preterism. And I asked him, when is the times of the Gentiles going to be fulfilled? He didn't know. He couldn't give an answer. He couldn't give a textual answer. He started giving a bunch of theological guys. I said, no, Ken, give us a, a textual answer from the text, not just to, uh, give us replacement theology uh, language because it's not there. And so this is a hinge. In other words, uh, Luke 21, 20 through 28 uh, gives us a consecutive hinge because we're living during the times in which Israel will be scattered among the Gentiles. We're living during the times of the Gentiles. And then... Verses 25 through 28 talk about the future time uh, of the seven-year tribulation when Israel is to look up because her redemption draws near and Israel will be redeemed. And so if you look at these passages, it's not that hard to figure out. In fact, a friend of mine, Randy Price, we wrote a book back together on the uh, Ready to Rebuild, the Rebuilding of the Temple. By the way, the book's dedicated to Charlie Clough. And uh, Randy gave six differences between what happened in AD 70 and when the temple was destroyed. In fact, the temple here described is said to be destroyed only, uh, is said to be destroyed, the temple here described is not said to be destroyed, only desecrated. By contrast, the present temple was to be uh, completely leveled, not one stone left upon another. That happened in AD 70. In other words, the future temple is not, is going to be desecrated, not destroyed. And then he says, that the temple's uh, des uh, desecration would be a signal for Jews to escape destruction, to be saved, and experience the promised redemption. By contrast, the destruction of the present temple was a judgment because you did not recognize the time of your visitation, Messiah's first advent, and resulted in the temple being leveled to the ground and your children, the Jews, um, within you. See, these are contrasts or differences here. And so what happened in AD 70 doesn't match Matthew 24, the generation of Jews that experienced the tribulation during the, which the temple was desecrated expected Messiah's coming immediately after. Uh, it's immediately after the tribulation of these days, you know, and then it describes the second coming, and was predicted to not pass away until they experienced it. By contrast, the Jewish generation that saw the temple destroyed would pass away, and 2,000 years to date have passed without redemption. 
you know, ask a preterist, are the Jews redeemed? Well, they'll probably want to give you some uh, replacement theology. Oh, it's talking about the church. Or it's talking about elect Jews. That's what Gary DeMar told me one time. It was the best he's been able to. These were talking about the Jews who were saved in the first century. Well, they fled. They fled before the whole thing happened to Pella. They weren't even involved in this because they got out. Well, um, I've got to go on because I'm way behind. Um, but another thing is, is that in, in Daniel chapter 9, for example, it said that, which talks about the AD 70 destruction, it said that uh, the person who destroyed the city would be cut off. And Titus, who destroyed the city, went back to Rome, remember? They built Titus's arch in victory. He wasn't cut off. So these events haven't happened. How do they deal with Revelation? Well, they go to Revelation and they say they're timing text. Short, the, these events must shortly take place. The time is near. I am coming quickly. Behold, I am coming uh, quickly. The third woe is coming quickly. Must, these things must take place shortly. Behold, I am coming quickly. For the time is near. I am coming quickly. Yes, I am coming quickly. And they say that is like uh, Matthew 24. In other words, saying that this thing had to happen within a generation. The problem with that view is, is that, first of all, uh, the leading Greek lexicon, Bauart Gingrich, uh, says that the Greek word for quickly, uh, takus, uh, has the emphasis on quickness or suddenness. In other words, and we also find that Bloss de Bruner, which is the world class number one uh, grammar in all of uh, you know scholarship, lists four types of adverbs. These are these are adjectives that are used adverbally, by the way, and it has an adverb of time and an adverb of manner. It doesn't classify takus as an adverb of time, which is what would be required if preterists were correct. Instead, it uses as its illustration of an adverb of manner the whole takus family. In other words, saying that's how something's going to happen. In other words, when Christ comes, it's going to be sudden and quickly. In fact, if I had more time, we could go to Deuteronomy and all throughout the Old Testament related to judgment passage is the picture that's described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 that the unbeliever is never ready. He's never prepared for God's judgment and he's, it comes suddenly and surprisingly to him. You see, that's the picture. That's what he's saying. There's not going to be any other intervening events we call this imminency that the next time he shows up there's going to be no warning. It's going to pop out there and that's why he says We're coming out uh, with a book in about a year that's going to be about a 500-page uh, uh, book against preterism. And uh, among other things, we'll show that the book of Revelation was written at least 30 years after AD 70. And so Revelation cannot be a prophecy about this. And besides, if the, uh, the word takus and engase were words talking about something you have to have quickly, it would mean the whole book of Revelation, because it's used in Revelation 22, 6 of the whole book. It, that would mean that, that we're in the new heavens and the new earth, and the whole book of Revelation would have been fulfilled. And that's what most preterists believe. Remember a moment ago I said, I thought the millennium was, we were in a millennial ghetto? 
Well, just think if we were in the new heavens and the new earth, which some of them believe. You know, no tears, no more pain, no more crying, you know, uh, new bodies and all this kind of stuff. I mean, what are these people doing getting married? Because in, in, in the age to come, there'll be uh, people won't marry or give in marriage. You see what I'm saying? I mean, this stuff leads to absurdity, and they think we're stupid because we take the Bible literally. Well, that's preterism, and I spent a lot of time on it because it's kind of a hot new thing, and I've been involved in dealing with it. The next issue is, is historicism. In other words, some believe that the whole church age is, in essence, equal to the tribulation, and that's called historicism. And it's the belief that... Uh, different events of the book of Revelation are being fulfilled through European history of the last 2,000 years. In other words, it, it believes that, um, that the Pope's the Antichrist. You know, that's kind of been in uh, you know, news lately. And by the way, that was, view was developed by a Catholic in the Middle Ages. I mean, I wish I had time to go into this. I don't, but, you know, uh, they developed that view themselves. The year-day theory, they believe that 1,260, 1,230 days, you know, in the, in the book of Daniel Revelation are really 1,230 uh, uh, years. And so since the tribulation started in 333, then uh, you add 333 to that, and you come up with 1,500 and something like that. And that was why Luther set a date for the second coming of something like 1562 based upon that logic and method. Uh, the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments are fulfilled uh, by European events during the last 2,000 years. So that a historicist uh, believes, and you can be pre-mill, post-mill, or all-mill and be a historicist. I mean, this view, some of the few historicists that are still left today are Seventh-day Adventists. Mormons were historicists. The wacko from Waco, Seventh-day Adventists. He, he was a premillennialist, all right, but he was a very different kind of premillennialist than a futurist because he believed the whole church age were all these events in the book of Revelation that are leading up to what? Armageddon and the second coming. And so uh, that's why they're the biggest date setters. You know there's a lot less date setting going on nowadays than there was 100 years ago? There are some out there that get a lot of publicity, but date setting used to be a standard thing. All the academic guys used to do it in that things you know, a few hundred years ago. And so historicism is a form. Then there's futurism, and futurism is what I believe. That is that the rapture, the tribulation, the second coming, and the millennium are future events. There's, these are things we're living here in the church age, and these events all are future to our time, so that's called futurism. And that's really the outgrowth of uh, uh, if you believe a prophecy has been fulfilled or not. And if you take it literally, then half of the prophecies of the Bible have not been fulfilled. We've got them all listed in our Prophecy Study Bible, by the way. And so therefore, if they haven't been fulfilled yet, then they're future, you see. That's basically an argument for futurism. And then idealism is the view that teaches, oh, Lord, either we can't know or God hasn't told us when things are going to happen chronologically. Of course, that's, that's amazing to me. And so... You know, because you've got all these numbers and time frame references and all this kind of stuff in the book of Revelation. But idealists teach that uh, all we can know is that we win in the end. It's all going to work out in the end. Well, as I said earlier, I know we're going to win, but, uh, you know, God's given us a few details. So let's look at 
prophetic timing and millennial views. In other words, what are the mixes? And that's where people get confused, you see. By knowing some of these principles and knowing what to look for, you're able to know, can you be a preterist and be an amill? Yes. What about post Yes. Jay Adams is an amill preterist, by the way. He's from around this area. Post-mill are people I talked about, but you cannot be a preterist and be a pre-mill. Why? Because millennium's in the future, you see? It's impossible. Can you be a historicist and be an all-mill, pre-mill, post-mill? Yes, on all three accounts. In other words, because that's relating to the tribulation. But you can't be pre-trib if you're a historicist. We'll talk about that later. Futurism. You can't be an all-mill and be a futurist. Why? Because history's just a blob. There's... You know, but you can be a post-mill futurist and a pre-mill futurist. What about an idealist? All-mills and post-mills can, but premillennialism's whole system is based on timing, so you can't be all-temporal, you know, and, and related to that. What about uh, the tribulation and the rapture? A preterist cannot be pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib. Why? Because the tribulation has already happened. Historicists. You cannot be pre-trib. Why? Because we're in the tribulation. You could theoretically be mid-trib if you thought the future, you know. And you can the- uh, and you can certainly be post-trib. Can a futurist be pre-mid or post? Yes, a futurist can be all three of those. Idealism all knows. So I'm just saying this is how a lot of this stuff works out. And then the fourth area is the distinction between Israel and the Church that we know is dispensationalism. In other words, uh, what about? a distinction between God's plan for Israel and God's plan for the church. And what, what we're saying is that if you take the Bible literally, then God has an unfinished program for Israel, does he not? The 70th week of Daniel has not happened yet. The kingdom has been postponed. Plus, there are dozens, probably hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament that says that Israel is going to disobey Israel's going to be punished, but in the end, Israel's going to come back. And I've asked many non-premillennial theologians, when has Israel come back? When has Israel uh, repented? When has Israel trusted the Lord? And they either say they haven't, or they have to say, oh, that's you know code language for the church. Well, then why were all the curses for Israel. But the church gets the blessings. It doesn't make sense. You know, you're changing horses in midstream because when those prophecies were given, they were talking about the same people throughout the whole prophecy. And you're coming in and simply, you know, ripping off part of the prophecy that hasn't been fulfilled yet and just saying it refers to the church. And so God's clearly got an unfinished plan for Israel. Besides, that's why they're the only people who, who've left their country who've been scattered across the and have maintained their identity. No one else has done it. And that's why they're back in the land. In fact, R.C. Sproul said at a conference I was at two years ago that it almost made him become a premillennialist. You know, the fact that Israel's back in the land, almost, he said. But I guess, you know, uh, theory is, is, is more powerful than uh, fact in that case. And so Israel's not finished, and that's why you have the church age. Acts 15 says that God was taking out from among the people, from the Gentiles, the people for his name. Acts, uh, Ephesians 2 and 3 says that God was taking the Jewish remnant 
and the Gentiles who are saved and putting them into one new man called the church, a co-equal status during the church age. You can't have Israel fulfilling in the millennium her promises of being the head and not the tail, of ruling over the nations, and have the church age intact at the same time. So that provides the basis for the church being a mystery or secret that was not predicted in the Old Testament. That's said three times in the New Testament. Romans chapter 16, Ephesians chapter uh, 1, 2, and 3, actually chapter 3, and then Colossians chapter 1. It's said specifically that the church was a mystery or unrevealed secret in the Old Testament. It was part of God's plan all along. He just didn't tell us about it. And that's why it begins suddenly, and this is why the rapture is a mechanism that ends the church age so that God can turn around and complete his uh, plan with Israel. And so you need to believe in the distinction between God's plan for Israel and the church. In fact, as I said earlier, uh, there's a progress of development of doctrine throughout Scripture. And I got this from Charlie years ago, uh, how... A book was written by J. Edwin Orr about 100 years ago. He's a post-millennialist, by the way. And he taught that down through history that, there, that doctrine was developed by the church in a logical way. It didn't just develop ha- haphazardly. And that there's a certain logic to systematic theology. You know, you start with the doctrine of God and then you go out developing these things because you can't develop eschatology until the end. Why? Because all your other areas of theology have to be developed before you can develop eschatology. Because what's eschatology? It's simply the doctrine of how everything's going to end. And so theology, theological prolegomen and bibliology was dealt with in the early church. And then the issue of Christ and the Trinity was dealt with you know, by the fourth century, by the time of Augustine. The doctrine of anthropology at the Council of Orange in 451, uh, man, nature of man and the doctrine of sin. And then you had Christology, the doctrine of the person and work of Christ. Do you realize the substitutionary atonement was not developed until the 1100s? Do you realize that with Anselm? Do you realize the early church held this ransom to Satan theory? Kind of like what Kenneth Copeland holds, that God paid off uh, the devil? The substitutionary atonement view wasn't taught theologically until the Middle Ages, along with some of the developments relating to the doctrine of the person of Christ. And the uh, doctrine of justification by faith was not articulated until Luther came along. It was talked about in a very sloppy fashion, but it wasn't articulated in a clear way. See, so there's been a progress of the church's understanding, not new revelation, but a progress in understanding doctrine as time goes on. And then the doctrine of the church was developed, ecclesiology. You can't have a state church and have the concept of the body of Christ. You see what I'm saying? Uh, of, of a believing church that gets raptured out, you see, if everybody is a member of it. That view didn't really develop until really post-Reformation times. And then eschatology, I said a moment ago, the doctrine of last things, has only been developed in a consistently literal way in the last 200 years. Now, quickly, rapture views. There's a pre-trib rapture view. 
that will take place uh, before, the, and that is that the rapture will take place before the tribulation and will include all believers. And as executive director of the Pre-Trib Research Center, you know, that gives you a clue what I believe. That is that the uh, rapture ends the church age, and the covenant starts tribulation. The rapture doesn't start the tribulation, it ends the church age. And, and the, the, there could be a period of days, weeks, or years between the rapture and the start of the tribulation, but the, the signing of the covenant starts that. Then there is partial, the partial rapture view that teaches that the rapture, only those faithful who are totally dedicated Christians will be caught up, leaving carnal Christians behind to be chastened by the tribulation. Of course, this view doesn't make sense. I mean, if you're not doing good during the church age, which is not near as tough as the tribulation is going to be, you know, then why would you do better... You know, during the tribulation, well, it doesn't make sense. Then there's the mid-trib rapture view, which occurs, teaches the rapture occurs in the middle of the tribulation, and thus believers endure the first half. So they go through the first half of Daniel's 70th week, and that's kind of like the guy during the Civil War who couldn't decide whether he wanted to uh, be on the north or the south, so he put a blue top on and a gray bottom and got shot from both sides. But the post-trib rapture view... Teaches that uh, the rapture occurs at the end of the tribulation, forcing all believers to endure the seven year tribulation. There's two types of post tribulationalism, at least. There's actually four kinds, but I don't want to get into that. And that is that some that equate the second coming in the rapture as a single event, and others that have the rapture taking place right before the second coming, you, where Christians are kind of got caught up and then go back down. We call that the yo yo rapture view. But we, you know, people always say the pre trib rapture. Uh, wasn't found in the early church. Well, we found, you know, just uh, seven or eight years ago, a Canadian named Grant Jeffrey called me up when we were in Washington, D.C., uh, and he'd found a rapture statement in a, in a sermon from uh, 373 uh, by a guy named Pseudo Ephraim who said, Why, therefore, it was called uh, On the Last Times the Antichrist and the End of the World. And this was not even translated into, into English. We found a Latin, we saw the quote in English, but we had to pay somebody to translate this, uh, this 1,472 Latin word uh, sermon into English. And by the way, there's at least 500 volumes of church history stuff in the Vatican and places like that that, that, uh, we, that people haven't even got to read yet, except for a few Catholics, you know, that have privilege. So we don't, we don't even know everything that's out there. But... He said, why therefore do we not reject every care of earthly actions and prepare ourselves for the meeting of the Lord Christ so that he may draw us from the confusion which overwhelms all the world? For all the saints and elect of God are gathered prior to the tribulation that is to come and are taken to the Lord lest they see the confusion that is to overwhelm the world because of our sins. And we wrote an article in, that appeared in Bibliothea Sacra arguing that this seems like a preacher of rapture statement from the 4th century. Robert Gundry wrote a rebuttal, and then in, in a book back there called The Return, I wrote a rebuttal of his rebuttal. I think that's called a Sir, Sir Rejonders, something like that. Then we found a statement by a guy named Morgan Edwards, who wrote this in 1744 while still at Bristol College in England. See, Darby allegedly came up with the rapture in 1830, you see. So 1744 would be a little bit before 1830, right? I, I think it still would be, even with modern learning, wouldn't it? 
And this guy basically says that, and this is a quote, that this, uh, there'll be the first and second resurrection somewhat more in a thousand years, somewhat more because the dead saints will be raised and the living changes Christ appearing in the air. He even uses 1 Thessalonians 4.17. And this will be about three years and a half before the millennium. See, a lot of people up until recently held the tribulation was only three and a half years. They didn't go start with Daniel 70 weeks. They would just go with the three and a half years out of the book of Revelation. That's what he's doing. So the tribulation for him was three and a half years, as we shall see hereafter. Uh, but he will, uh, uh, but will he and they abide in the air all that time? See, for a thousand years, or really fifteen hundred years, uh, actually, uh, Jerome taught this that there would be a rapture at the second coming, and Christians would hover in the air for forty-five days from Daniel chapter twelve, and the earth would be renovated, and then they'd come back down. Now, some people have taught that's a preacher of rapture. No, it's not. That is a even an amillennial view of the second coming, uh, because the second coming is where they caught the air. That's simply a renovation of the earth where they come back down. And so he's simply saying, in other words, they don't just abide up in the air all that time. He's referring to the historical debate that had gone on for 1,500 years. No, they will ascend to paradise or to some one of those many mansions in the Father's house. He even uses that in the way that we do today. And so disappear during the foresaid period, you know, the tribulation period. Uh, the design of this retreat and disappearing will be to judge the risen and chained saints. For now the time has come that judgment must begin in the house of God. So he even has the uh, beam of judgment going on during that time as well. And this was written in 17. 44 by a guy named Morgan Edwards, who founded Brown University. He was a Baptist, and he was the, he's the father of American Baptist church history. And uh, we found this about five years ago. This is just more stuff. Uh, a friend of mine, Frank Moretta, who lives, um, uh, he works at Aberdeen Proving Grounds also, he lives in the Maryland area. He's a researcher. Ran across a statement by Thomas Collier in 1674 that makes reference to a pre-tribulational rapture. But Thomas Collier, a Puritan, rejects the view. But he shows his awareness that such a view was being taught. So here's Morgan Edwards, taught it as early as 1744. His book was published in 1788 in Philadelphia uh, in the United States. So it shows, that, and, and people really didn't become aware of it until five years ago, that that view was being taught and people didn't know about it. You see what I'm saying? Uh, and he writes of Collier, because he raised the question of the saints being raised at Christ's first appearing in the clouds of heaven, instead of later on at the entrance of a thousand years, it is apparent that Collier certainly considered the idea of a preacher of rapture, but he rejected it. Now, the issue is Darby invented the rapture. You know, he got it from some Scottish girl, 15-year-old girl, and all this kind of stuff named Margaret McDonald. And what I want to show you is he, he, he uh, from his own writings, he makes it clear that he came to hold to the preacher of rapture uh, by December 1826, January 1827. And uh, Dr. or a guy named uh, R.A. Hubner, who's a brethren up in the New Jersey area, said, first of all, he saw from Isaiah 32 that there was a different dispensation coming, that Israel and the church were distinct, that during his convalescence, he had uh, a horse riding accident where a horse ran him up against a wall and hurt his leg, 
And so that's why he was convalescing during December 1826 and January 1827. During his convalescence, Darby learned that he ought daily to expect the Lord's return. In 1827, uh, Darby understood the fall of the church, or what he called the ruin of the church, the apostasy of the church. Darby uh, also was beginning to see a gap of time between the rapture and the second coming by 1827. And he himself said in 1857 that he first started understanding these things relating to the preacher of rapture 30 years ago. And uh, with that fixed point of reference, January 31st, 1827, declares Hebrew, we can see that Darby had already understood these truths upon which the preacher of rapture hinges. Now, he first came to the view in 1827. It was a full 10 years later that he became convinced of the view. But I only bring this up to uh, show that Darby himself documents that he came to the view before this girl named Margaret McDonald and all these other people you know, uh, got around that people used to uh, uh, deal with these things. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've given us the Word of God, and, you've given, and I thank you that there's a lot of information in it that has to be uh, studied and put together because you have a very interesting plan for history. And it's not just some simple little thing, but there are, are hundreds of details that you have prophesied in the Bible that are still to take place. And we thank you for men in the past who have studied faithfully your word and, uh, in a way that is pleasing to you. And we pray that you would help us to understand uh, what your view of the end times is so that we can have a full understanding of the whole counsel of the Word of God, and as the New Testament teaches, that we can expect your any moment coming. And we ask that you would motivate us to live in a manner worthy of the one who might show up at any moment. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, we have a break in the questions, or is that what y'all want to do, or what?